This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Elizabeth and Alan Fiend. Uh, I'm at their house here in South Philadelphia, and it is March 16th, 2013. This is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Fiends. Hello. Hi. Uh, so I guess we'll begin with um, where you two were born and in what year. I was born on Long Island in 1958. Okay. And I was born in West Philly in 1955. All right. Uh, so I guess it, I haven't actually interviewed two different people at the same time, so I'm going to try to, and I know that your story ultimately is going to come together, so I'll kind of bounce between the two of you to kind of get something of a, you know, an upbringing story. I guess we'll start with you, Elizabeth. So, um, growing up there in Long Island, what were you like as a young person? What were your interests? I was the same, exactly the same as I am now, but smaller. Mm -hmm. I was uh, the weird freak in the neighborhood. I had unusual clothing and I always had big hair. So my interests were uh, social justice. Okay. And were your parents, were they responsive to your interests or were you at odds with them? No, I had a very copacetic childhood. They just assumed I would grow out of it. Okay. In fact, when I met Alan and before we got married, our parents said that we brought out the worst in each other. Oh, that's good. Yes. And yet, still together, 2013. <laughs> Not a lot of people can say that. Um, so, Alan, uh, what was your uh, upbringing like? A little bit of that. Um, well, growing up in West Philly was uh, I had there was a lot of influences. It's still an incredible place to grow up. Um, I had you know the universities are there and uh, so many so so much music. Mm -hmm. I grew up uh, you know listening to all kinds of music and uh, basically my interests were sports and that's about it okay <laughs> um it for the two of us i think we grew up in a different time our parents were just too busy or the or there wasn't so much of a uh, a, a concentration on keeping kids safe mm -hmm. so you could just do what you wanted right and basically your parents didn't know what you were doing we were, you know there's no leash on us so you know you could just basically do what you want. Right. What did your parents do both for both of you for a living? My mother was a uh, public school teacher and my father uh, managed a dry cleaning store. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was in administration at Penn and my dad was a manager in uh, various places, okay. various businesses. So prior, uh, or I guess, how did the seed of punk come into your respective heads? Well, I just was waiting my whole life until it came. And then it came. Right. And then I was there at so the very the, beginning. Yay! <laughs> so when this thing came about, did you get the feeling like this, this is, is what the thing? I've been waiting for? Right. And punk started the exact same time Alan and I met, which is 1976. We're college sweethearts, and yeah. we meet each other for one week, and then we moved in together from then until now. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so then, did the seed enter into your heads at the same time? I mean, were you together when this thing came about? Yeah, because we. Uh, for me, there were um, uh, background stuff. Um, there were, I was a skateboarder. Um, in 75, I was working on the shore, and uh, all of a sudden you could start to hear the music starting to change, you know. And, uh, you know, people don't realize this, but uh, I think Springsteen was a big influence on, uh, on the hardcore scene. Just like, yeah, now I've got straight leg pants and short hair, and I'm singing mm -hmm. about working class stuff. So all of a sudden in 75, that started to emerge. And then when we were at school at Indiana PA, the actual punk stuff started coming in and we 
you couldn't hear it, but you could read about it. Um, Elizabeth got the Village Voice a lot, and you'd, you'd read the ads and the articles, and you realize, hey, something new's coming. It's here. Right. And then for, was it the same for you? Like, this is, this is the thing, you know, now that this, this thing was there? Um, I'm not sure if it was the thing, because... Like, you know, I'd been a musician before, I always played guitar, so sometimes, you know, you don't go, oh, that's it, I'm just changing over. I just kind of, kind of went with it. Mm-hmm. For me, I think it was more of going with it. Right, right. What were some of the bands that you were interested in prior to uh, the birth of punk? Um, well, for one thing, I was just all kinds of bands. Again, living in West Philly, it, there's so much jazz influence. There's so much R&B influence. I loved rock. I loved all that, and like the stuff that was on the Nugget stuff. Mm-hmm. I listened to all of that. Um, and, and another thing was, when we were going to school, the music was sometimes so bad. Like Dan Fogelberg and the Eagles, mm-hmm. that all of a sudden it had turned so bad that you wanted anything else, anything else. <laughs> right. You know, please, put the Stooges back on. Right. So you two, you met in college, um, and then ultimately came to Philadelphia at some point? Well, Alan was already in Philadelphia. Okay. So uh, I came back to where he lived. Right. And what did you think of Philadelphia upon meeting the city? I thought that it had a very orange street lights at night. <laughs> that was your, your sole observation? Yes, that was my biggest observation. What color are the street lights now? I never really thought of that. They're not as orange as these. <laughs> okay. Do you miss the orange street lights? No, but it was quite a glow. Okay. So did you move into West Philly? Yes. Yes, okay. we did. And what was uh, the part of West Philly that you were living in like at that time, maybe in contrast to how it is now? It was like a dump. Right. What, where in West Philly was this? Well, our, our, we had a series of apartments on 45th Street, and then we had a little house that was on um, Ranstead Street and 42nd. And actually, that's where we had our wedding, which became that diner. What was the name of that diner? On 42nd and Chestnut? Silk City. That diner? Uh, no, no, no. Not Silk City. Oh, on 45th Street. Well, it sucks it. Okay. And it became the, uh, I guess it's an Islamic place now, right? It was Silk City when we went to the opening day and uh, they That was 42nd Horror. Street, right? It was on oh, 42nd, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what was it like, Alan? It was, it was a lot the same. West Philly has always been a magnet for alternative people. There was a hippie scene there, there was a jazz scene there. It was just kind of a inevitable that this scene happened. And in fact, when we moved in, the scene was happening. Mm-hmm. All we had to do, you know, we all, already musicians, all we had to do was plug in. Right. And it was already there. Mm-hmm. So this is what, uh, 80, 81? 70, we moved okay. here in 78. Okay. And then kind of like took a year to get our bearings around, like getting work and stuff like that. And mm. by 80, all of a sudden, we were a full-time part of the whole thing. Okay. And is that the birth of the band Morphines? Is that 80 or is it coming later? No, no, 80. Uh, not, uh, not specifically called Morphines, but we started playing and uh, we discussed it before. Um, we met the Stickmen people and started hanging out at their house on, uh, at basically at 45th and uh, Locust on and Buckingham. Tim Dunn. Tim Dunn. I did interview him yes, as well. So. Yeah. And uh, oh, just a whole lot of stuff coalesced in about 1980 mm-hmm. and uh, started going to shows, um, Eastside Club, um, the old uh, Elk Center that was at the 17th and Fitzwater. Mm-hmm. Those crazy shows there. 
So what were some of the bands that you were seeing from Philly uh, around that time that you particularly liked, say? Well, we were hanging out with the Stickman and King of Siam, Radio Silent. What else? Let's see, uh, Bunny Drums. Sadistic um, Exploits basically started then too, looking at going to their shows. Battling their supporters. What was the, what was the issue? When you say battling their supporters. Well, when it first started out, punk everywhere and Philly included was a, a very open expression type. Whatever you want goes. Everybody was unique and different. And then we uh, were always weird freaks. So uh, when hardcore came in, it really came in with a bang and kind of took over, and was very um, much more of an oppressive uniform style um, endeavor and that made us seem even more freakish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you continued to sort of move through the circles, at least in performing. I mean, you were playing in, in clubs and before, you know, with these sort of bands to that sort of audience. Um, not so much because there was a clear split between West Philly and Center City. Mm -hmm. Now, and, the, and also there's a split for us, like, you know, 80 to say 83 or 84, it was much more the old punk, like the 70s punk, um, you know, still being influenced by you know, the New York talking head scene and, you know, and it wasn't so st straight, straight ahead hardcore. There was hardcore no bands, wave but... scene that we were in. We were right. no wave. Okay. And we still are. Yeah. Um, when did that change? I mean, because uh, all of a sudden, like a whole a whole load of the original people just dropped right out, mm -hmm. and you know, right around eighty three or eighty four, like a whole new batch of kids were coming in. Right. So that you felt that you, in some ways you were at odds with the this new batch of kids that were coming no, in. No, we the time. felt that they were at odds with us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a different thing. But mm -hmm. but also the levels of aggression in everybody was just insane. I mean, we went to an, uh, the Elks Club show with Bad Brains. Uh, they hired uh, the guardian angels to be uh, security, right. so naturally a huge fight just er erupted <clears throat> in you know. Yeah, because if you hire thugs as security, then that guarantees there's going to be yes. an issue, you know, a but, little baby Altamont or something. Plus the yes, we were in quite a few fights, constantly yeah, in fights. Constantly in fights. Yeah. I mean, for not only not only from like you know other bands supporters who hated you, because just because they hated everybody. Right. Plus the general public who hated you for being punks <laughs> right, and right. wanted to kill you for doing that. We we moved to a house um, eighty. What was the year when we went to King Sessing? Eighty two. So we moved to a house, a group house in nineteen eighty two on King Sessing and forty sixth. Yeah. And we lived there. The two of us, a six foot tall gay first generation Mexican American, a dwarf. A mixed race uh, woman who was dating the dwarf and the son of the police chief of Cherry Hill. Wow, that's some combination there. So we would <clears throat> walk around, we were, you know, pals, and we'd walk around and stuff, and we would be even walking down a street, and just our appearance would be enough for a stranger to stop their car, jump out, and run over and punch us. <laughs> wow, I, I guess maybe you took some pleasure in taking a sort of ad adversarial position with the with the kids, say like the hardcore kids. I mean, did you get a certain glee out of 
pressing their buttons that I imagine were probably fairly easy to press? I didn't do that because I always just was myself. I never pressed anybody's buttons. They perceived I was pressing their buttons, but right. I was not pressing their buttons. And some people just didn't have that attitude, you know. We were just in the scene. If you didn't like us, fine. You didn't like our band, fine. Right. You know, just Well, plus I whatever. was like one of the few women around, so that added a lot of power, actually, <laughs> for me. Right. Um, so I read something that, that the listener probably doesn't have the privilege to read, which is the 1981 essay that you wrote, uh, which I thought was great. And I thought that maybe, and you kind of mentioned a few of these things already here in the interview, but maybe there's a few other points from that that you might want to uh, talk about, um, you know, how, how that year went down, because it, it seemed to be quite a year for the two of you. It was a very fun year, 1981. We uh, got married that year, but before we got married, we lived in a tiny house on 42nd and uh, off Chestnut and um, we kind of ran out of money because we sort of weren't working and then the landlord would call us up and we just didn't answer the phone and then other bill collectors would call us up we just didn't answer the phone in a very immature way thinking it would go away and then it actually it did go away and the <laughs> landlord just stopped calling us and they just started living there without paying rent yeah. and then we did ridiculous things like when our refrigerator broke we decided it would be appropriate to break into the house next door since it was empty and owned by the same landlord and we would just switch our broken refrigerator with the one that worked at that house. So we dragged our refrigerator out the back door through the snow, then we dragged that refrigerator into our house, and um, that's when we realized the um, one we left in the other house didn't fit in a little niche, so we just mm. left it in the middle of the floor. And then we said, well, we." then the landlord did show up and goes, he came to our house and he goes, I just don't understand why the refrigerator doesn't fit in the kitchen next door. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's tracks in the snow clearly going from our back door to that back door. Probably elves. And uh, we were like, I don't know. I don't know. It's so <laughs> no, strange. Really I just don't know why. And he shrugged his shoulder and they just left. And they still never charge us any rent. And then we sort of, you know, didn't pay the electric bill and the gas bill and then it kind of was fine until the gas man came to turn off the gas and it was starting to be the winter and that's when he said he did turn off the gas. We tried to bribe him a few times and uh, that didn't work. So we turned the gas off and that's when he said, well, it's going to be a little chilly with those cold showers and that's when we thought it would be a good idea to move. <laughs> yeah, that probably is a good point to do that. <laughs> Um, so I guess you, the band wound up touring, uh, maybe, is, I don't know if this is getting ahead too much, but... It's getting it's, way ahead, okay, because, okay, well, because um, first off, that the, the third version of the band went on tour. Okay, so... When, after these problems at Randstead Street got to be too much, we moved into that group house in King Sessing, and that's where the band formed. Okay. And we did our first show as Morphines in 30 years ago, maybe, to the day. Wow. Um, and, uh, so the band is always, I'm mean, interrupt you for a second, is always the, is really the two of you. Yes. And then whoever is yes. playing with you at that particular time. Yeah. Okay. But so, they were important parts of the band. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not and we, take, we always picked those people never for uh, music reasons. It was always personality reasons. And then they were friends. It was punk, so it didn't matter if you played. You just go up and do anything. Well, the, the, the gay Mexican guy got up and played the cigarette. <laughs> smoked the cigarette. Well, and he was probably very attractive. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. Was very attractive. And the dwarf just sat, we gave him a keyboard and he just went, 
whatever. So, uh, so this is the then that's the first incarnation. Yes, yeah, first the, incarnation. Okay. Yeah. Oh. And that's when we kind of said goodbye to Alan's friends from childhood. Yes. They came to the show and they go, "This is absolutely revolting and disgusting." <laughs> and I believe they called our friends rats and pigeons in the basement. And then basically we never saw them again. Yes. Goodbye, mm. childhood. Mm, yeah. Doesn't sound like that much of a loss if that was their reaction <laughs> to it. So probably for the best. Um, so are there any particular high points of incarnation number one at the time? Uh, the second show that we did was a, um, a benefit at the Houston Hall at Penn for some El Salvadoran thing that was going on. But um, it was uh, with Ruin. That was our second show. And, uh, were you friendly with them? Yeah, yeah, we were pretty friendly with them. No, um, we borrowed all our equipment, so because <laughs> we were like dirt poor and had nothing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and the, the funny thing, we've said this to a million people, but they're Buddhists and they lost their one of their guitar patch chords and they're Trust sitting around, let's chant for it. They, they, so they all chanted they, for it. And there it is over in the uh, corner. Oh, it actually worked out. <laughs> yes. it worked. And we all said, hey, good, good for you guys. Um, so I guess uh, then moving into incarnation number two, um, is there any kind of a major shift in the... The dynamics of the band, or what's the? We became more of a band. Okay. I think we had more concentration on actually playing music. And is there so there's actual you know songwriting? Yeah, there was songwriting before, but due to you know equipment problems, we didn't really play all that many shows. I mean, ten maybe. Mm -hmm. um, as as one. As the one, yeah. Okay. As two, we got a saxophone player. Uh, Matt is the saxophone player, and uh, Bernie, who uh, was hanging out with. Um, the stickmen people. That's... And we were totally no wave then. Yeah. Just absolutely no wave, like Lena Lovitch or James Chance. And um, we were extremely freaky. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you've moved into two now. Uh, is, there, uh, is there a desire to record at some point? When, when does recording come into the... We record, yeah, um, we recorded um, Bob Dickey of... Uh, of uh, various bands, let's put it that way, recorded us uh, uh, in uh, the basement that we were playing at Spring Garden and uh, 38th Street. That's where we were practicing. And uh, there's, there's a couple of recordings, all cassette recordings, and uh, some pretty good ones. Our first cassette was called Mow the Lawn. Yeah. Okay, very good. Yes. Uh, uh, the, one of the videos is from that era, too. Okay. Um, that was uh, with that band broke up just because uh, because we're starting to get press too and uh, people loved Matt the uh, one-legged uh, Buddhist saxophone player was very popular and then he decided hey, you know what I'm gonna go off on my own and I'm gonna take your band with me hmm. now how is it that this gentleman came to have one leg it's a cliche he took acid and jumped off a fifth floor uh, roof <laughs> His leg flew off when he hit yes, the ground. Yeah. Okay. And so he had no leg. One of our best shows at Abe's was, uh, and the dead milkman will attest to this, mm -hmm. that uh, when he changed his prosthesis on stage. And, well, see, uh, he walked around with a cane, so a lot of people didn't know they only had one leg. Yeah. And uh, what he did was his new prosthesis was in a big paper bag. And we, from the stage, took the paper bag 
and we um, had it circulate through the crowd like surf dance, surf, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the bag was passed <laughs> all the way around to the back of the room and then came up front. And then Matt sat on a stool and took his old prosthesis off. And everybody is standing in the room is like with their mouths wide open, <laughs> like what the fuck is going on? And he, his leg, he had a stump. So his leg was just a tiny bit um, part of below the knee. So it like bent, so it was really freaky looking. Yes. And then he takes the um, old leg off and, he, and we were jamming and we started a song called What's in the Bag? <laughs> and then when he took it out, we go, it's a new leg. <laughs> and apparently that became like a catch phase for a lot of people. They would go, what's in the bag? And then he put his uh, new leg on and then we continued the show. And this was at a time when it was probably the total top of West Philly punk scene. Um, and it totally shifted for everybody from Center City. And hardly any of the Center City people like ever showed up anymore in West Philly. It was completely self-contained. There were shows at three of the frats at, uh, at Penn, mm -hmm. um, CEC, uh, Abe's, People's Basements, um, there were shows at, um, at Houston Hall, or still benefit shows at Houston Hall. So West Philly all of a sudden like exploded in right, like, right. you know, places to play and punk scene. And, like, and we did a show at Abe's where, um, you know, Gary Heidnick, the mass murderer, would uh, hang around there. And um, one of the shows, he approached me to um, comment on how much he liked my hair. Mm -hmm. It was quite quite fetching. Yeah, maybe you should explain uh, to to the listener um, a little bit about Gary Heidnick, uh, one of Philly's more infamous sons. You know, next to Frank Rizzo or something. Uh, can you tell us a little well, bit about him? Well, there was this, there was a, a group of people um, who the Apes was actually a, a luncheonette, and the guy Abe who owned the place, he kind of collected um, down and out people. And he gave them lodging upstairs of the luncheonette. And there was some talk that maybe he was helping them or maybe he was using them. He, it was a fine line. He would collect their uh, welfare checks or whatever money they were getting and keep the money and then um, make sure they had food and a place to stay. And um, Gary Heineck didn't live there, but he was one of the odd types of people who hung out there. I've heard them referred to as Abe's Army. He was part of Abe's Army. Right. I know Tim and, Dunn um, told you that. Uh, yep. And he would just be hanging around there. We didn't know that he would soon um, start collecting women and um, torturing them and killing them and eating them in his house. Uh, but um, he was there, and he did, um, he liked my hair. He, and those women, a lot of them were from Elway, the uh, disabled, Elwin, right, uh, the disabled workplace. And they would hang out at Abe's, and Heidi would come in and like been procure them. Or something, right. And he had an assistant, too, didn't he? Wasn't there another, sure. some I'm weird thing about that? I, I, I see that that's online right now, but that wasn't really something that was, Obvious and we just knew him as time. like, no, he's a crazy guy. Right. Now, did he write you a letter of some no, sort? No, he never wrote me a letter. Okay, but but he did. He liked your hair very much. He liked my hair. Yeah. I had was wearing the one day they came up to me specifically. I was wearing a, um, I had made a bridal veil out of black veil. And instead of wearing it forward, I was wearing it backwards. And that's what he, he really liked that. He said it was very creative. And he really liked creative women. Yeah, that's good. He yes. liked to nibble on their he, bodies. He, he thought they were delicious. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad he didn't take a nibble out of you. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, later on I found out 
that he really had just recently, when he showed up at Apes, been released from prison. And we never knew that at the time. He had already been in prison for um, sexually abusing a, um, a mentally challenged woman. Okay. We also had another show there canceled because the uh, cook put a butcher knife through somebody's chest, killed the guy, so uh, that show was off. Wow. Yes. Uh, what was going on there? No. Person, just, personal differences? Per, you know, Made a yes, shitty steak personal, or something? Yes. yes. Okay. No, no, there, there was no good food at Abe's. <laughs> if, you, if, if you ate at Abe's, you were in, like, you know, taking your life in your hands. <laughs> And then you couldn't get in the bathroom because, you know, pe various people were shooting up in the bathrooms. Get up in there! Come on! And yeah, I guess this is... Oh, oh, quite like the this. death trap yes, also. Yeah, the oh, room yeah. Where they had the shows was in the back. And there was only one doorway to outside, and it was not very safe. The best show at Abe's... Remember, uh, you know, Crucifix? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They were the headliners. And uh, they play. Oh, it was uh, Sadistic Exploits, Ruin... And um, there was another band that we knew called uh, Herpes, and their From bass Philly. player had like, a throw to get the band. But the Bunny Drums drummer was their drummer, and he was incredible. So mm -hmm. they put on an incredible set. And then Ruin put on an incredible set. And then Sadistic Exploits put on an incredible set. And then Crucifix went, how do we follow all of that? And they yeah. sucked, and people uh, just blew them off the stage. That's too bad. Yeah. Their records are really good, but yeah. uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned people shooting up in the bathroom, and so I'll kind of maybe move into drugs a little bit. Um, did you see a lot of drugs on the scene in Philadelphia in early to mid-'80s, say? At well, all times? Yes. I just wanted to tell you that um, we had some band members that had some um, problems with heroin, but I don't think we should say who they are. No. But we, I don't so even know anybody's name. Have, yeah. We had some problems ourselves. Sometimes when our bands changed personnel is because some, one of the persons was too involved with heroin and it really was having a ne negative impact on the bands. And it was difficult to hang around with people who were doing heroin. And there was also a huge crank speed problem too. People were shooting up speed, and that became a problem. Yeah. So did did you did either of you have an interest in, in drugs at some point? No, we and in fact you can see from the way we ended up, um, what happened to us. Plenty of the people from that era who had the drug problems and had problems, they are in bad shape now. Mm -hmm. Let's just say we have a full set of teeth. Right, right, right yeah. Uh, also, we had a life, too. I mean, we're not really interested in it. Of course, you know, we did that kind of stuff. Yeah. If someone had, you know, a line of coke, we'd go, yeah, okay, yeah. Right. But it never really fueled us at all. Did you ha ever have an interest in psychedelics? Well, I don't remember the year, but one year our band was um, awarded the by Frank Blank. I guess he was writing for the City Paper, or the Welcome Mat. Uh, he um, gave us the award of the most punk show of the year, mm -hmm. and we were playing at Pulsations, which was mm -hmm. a ridiculous place for it to play at. It was a it's huge, like a disco club or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Nightclub. And they had a giant room that um, was, who was playing there? CC Music Company? No, no, no. Um, uh, 
Snap. Snap, yeah. Some really it was like big... A, like, like a big rap show, Snap, and like Houdini, and somebody like that. And then, and then they thought morphine. it would be a really good idea no, no, to have a punch in a separate, show in, a, in, a separate in the front room. room oh, okay. In the front room. Yeah. So we mm -hmm. go to that show, and um, instantly our driver and friend is busted for smoking weed in the dressing room by some security guard, even though at the other shows, like everyone's doing coke. So our guy gets busted for doing weed. And then they hold him and our drummer um, hostage in the dressing room, which is the same room where they have like cans and cans of Coke syrup lining the walls and cheese whiz. And uh, so they're being held hostage and they uh, refuse to tell us if they're going to let him go so we can play our set or not. So we're getting pretty worked up. And then we said, well, I think this is a really good time to take some LSD. So we said, all right, well, yeah, it is definitely a really good time for that. So we said, sure. So then um, we kept getting more um, antagonistic. And then all the people are coming in, like, dressed up really nice for the dressed other Dressed up, show. like, like the, it was set up so that the, the stage was facing directly into the, uh, the uh, opening, the door mm -hmm. entrance. And then people would come in and then go turn this way, and they were really dressed up nice. Right, like, right. And, you know, and we're sitting on stage <laughs> screaming, "We know you're doing coke upstairs. You busted our people. <laughs> Fuck you, people. We know you're doing coke." And these all these nice looking black people are coming and going, "What the hell is going on here?" And then, the, um, for some reason, the the sh people, the sheriff people, not real police, came to take oh, state, uh, to state the troopers, state troopers. Yeah. For whatever reason, they were the police that had to come, so they took away our our driver, and um, we couldn't stay in touch with him. There's no cell phones, or whatever, at that time. But he came home before we did, <laughs> yeah. and but then they released our our drummer. He was allowed to. Um, play the show but by then we were sort of worked up <laughs> and it uh, was quite because quite we tonight. we like acid but just uh not much okay just not enough to, to like too much not to right. take too much right so just, was, to, just to like to tweak things a little bit because i was wondering if that had all played a role in the kind of you know very lysergic visual you know uh look of the of the band no the no because we were like that anyway Okay. And the acid just kind of like was just a little part of it. Okay. It wasn't like a big part of it. All right. Mm. So I guess we're I guess we're near incarnation number three. Um, number three, yes. Yeah. So what at that time? What was your living situation like? We had moved. We moved to the last um, our last apartment in West Philly at Forty um, Fifth and Osage, mm -hmm. um, and we, I started working as a bike messenger. I had my first and best job, it was downhill since then, where I worked in a television script archive at the University of Pennsylvania, and they paid me to um, read t um, TV scripts all day long and analyze them for content. Yeah, that So I good. Uh, yeah. would sit there and read the entire um, season of Dallas, uh, episode after episode, and I would code each one for um, thematic analysis, and it was really fun. What did they do with this information? With research, because okay. th at that time there was no way to know what the themes of television programs were. So, for example, um, someone would say, I would like to write a paper on how the media portrays people who are adopted. Mm -hmm. So you could pinpoint exactly what television oh, right, right. episodes, primetime TV, had adopted people in them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it was used. Nice. So incarnation number three is is there? Uh, we finally got a bass player. We had never had a bass player. Okay. Um, and pretty stock band. 
the two guitars, bass, and the drummer, Rich, which poor, which Hope was a drummer. Oh no, um, well, first Bob Bludgeon, we had another drummer. And um, we just, the one we- We're pretty popular, and that band was the one that uh, we wrote, did our first album with Rave Records. And then the album was very popular, and that's when we started touring. So did you do U.S. first? We did a U.S. Yes, first, sure. and then we went right to Europe after that. Now, for U.S., did you have a manager who was setting up the tour? We had um, Rave Records. Okay. Well, no, Sub Pop. Oh, well, Rave Sub Records Pop, was actually, our record, yeah. but Sub oh. Pop did our... We were the first non-Sub Pop band that Sub Pop booked a tour for. Oh, no. And that, that also kind of is an indication of how things are shifting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all of a sudden Sub Pop's getting into the game and the hardcore scene is pretty much taken over from from everything else. Right, and what year are we talking about? Um, we're, um, this is, eight, we, the, that band started in 85. Okay. And then we recorded the album in, like, say, 86, 87, and then we did the, the, uh, the U.S. tour in 89. Mm-hmm. So 89, touring the U.S., who, who are you being coupled with to perform, and what sort of venues are you performing in? Um, clubs, yeah. medium-sized clubs, a few big clubs. I mean, are these, are these sort of punk-ish bills, or uh, kind of, you know, an eclectic mix of things? Like Some, sort of... well, it was all kinds of stuff. Like in, in Pittsburgh, we played in this huge, right outside of Pittsburgh, in this old church with like, you know, a jazz band and a rap band. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in when we went to Seattle, we played with like Thugs, which was a, a French uh, oh, yeah. hardcore band. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, we played in LA at some kind of cultural spot, and we ended up playing with Jim Manessis from the Stickmen, who had moved out there, or was doing shows there, and just by, oh, hey Jim, what are you doing? Oh, I'm playing a show here. Oh, us too. Um, San Francisco, we played, um, we played a club, and then we, and in, and then we played in Berkeley at some at a warehouse show with uh, lots of Apple. punk bands. The band Apple, Apple from New York. The anarchist punk mm-hmm. yeah. band. That's when yeah. we started getting paired up with anarchist, uh, other anarchist bands. We did, played at the anarchist gathering, the international anarchist gathering. Oh, was that 1989 in Bay Area? Mm-hmm. What did that day? Yeah. yeah, yeah, we played that. Um, let's see. We, we played... got into some fights there, too. We got into a lot of fights. <laughs> did you identify yourselves as anarchists? Yes. And do you continue to? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, what that means exactly is like, you know, somebody's version of, a West Philly version of an anarchy is like, you know, at some point we couldn't hang out with the anarchists because they just got so anal about everything. It's just like, shoot, take your rules and, you know, we're out of here. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. It really, I mean, the U.S. is just so spread out and, you know, so all over the place. It really wasn't until we went to Europe in 89, right after the U.S. tour, that you really got that sense of anarchy. Just because we played so many squads, so many occupied. Mm -hmm. But we were in Europe when the Autonomen were starting up, so that was really exciting. We did a lot of show with Autonomen people. We uh, were in a lot of uh, several um, protests and demonstrations with the Autonomen. I'm sorry, do you want to explain what the Autonomen is? The Autonomen were uh, what is really, I think, the basis for like the anarchist scene in West Philly, and they still and the Black Bloc. They were the beginning of the anarchist Black Bloc, 
but in Europe they were pretty strong. People were pretty political and we were playing a show in Hamburg um, and we're standing, we're playing under the uh, this five-pointed red star with a machine gun, a giant flag, and it was for the uh, RAF, the Red Army Faction, which apparently had just, uh, this was their building, they had just um, thrown some bombs and killed a banker in his car. So we're playing the show and we we're supposed to be staying there and then uh, we quickly, they quickly like end up the, sh the show and they go, you know, like we said you could sleep here but you really can't because we've just been tipped off that their police are coming here to raid the place so they ushered us out and then we had a crash somewhere else. And then we had other shows in like in Copenhagen where um, we're playing the show and, and everything, people just loved us and it was going so well. We were in the Undenschutze, which is one of the most famous uh, squats in the world. It was very long-lived and um, so we're playing the show, everything's going very well and then I go, this is going to be our last song and I kind of look down to adjust one of my effects boxes and when I look up, the whole room is empty. And I'm like, that's weird. Is this like some... Um, thing they do in Copenhagen, you know, people leave when you say the last song, I don't know what happens, so we play the last song, and then we um, stop, and the sound man goes, goes, don't worry, it's not that they don't like you, it's that the police are raiding the um, house. And uh, we, we go to other places, like... Oh, wait, let me just finish up, oh. and so then we go, well, I wonder what we should do. <laughs> Um, everybody seems to have like their um, stations and they're standing at the um, the front door which is being uh, pushed by police in full riot gear with helmets and shields and batons and the police are uh, forming a line outside the building trying to force their way in and the anarchists are inside trying to hold the doors and we're like, well, I wonder what we should do, you know, is this dangerous, you know, mm. I'm not really <laughs> sure. So we go, well, I guess we'll just, you know, kind of hang around the bar and then uh, all of a sudden it's over and everybody comes back to the room and I go, well, what happened? And they go, well, Oh, the police, they just gave up. I was like, what? <laughs> so it was like sort of a game they would play yeah. in Europe. They had some very specific rules about squats and raiding punks. And then everyone's grumbling at the bar. It goes, well, the police came here because they accused one of our people here from stealing from whatever the Copenhagen version of 7-Eleven is. And then the lady next to me goes, well, they did steal from the <laughs> Copenhagen version of 7-Eleven. And I'm like, all right, fine. We'd go to places and... Uh the, to the big, huge squats occupied, like, huge libraries that they'd mm -hmm. taken over. And go, went up, up to the roof, and the guy goes, Hey, don't smoke any cigarettes up here. This is where we make our Molotov cocktails. And then we look down, and go, oh, cases and cases of Molotov cocktails. Okay, that's fine. We went to this other place that was huge, just huge. A whole city block. A whole city block that they but factory. They had, they had to leave, like, in, in a month. And four months before that, they still knew they had to leave. They had a huge the party and right? wrecked the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The There's like stuff, like the ceilings caved in. There's water flowing everywhere. There's still a couple people living there. And they said, okay, which room do you want to sleep in? The one with all the dog shit in it or the one that's completely burnt out? Jeez, mm, that's <laughs> a tough decision there. And uh, we played some, uh, we played our biggest show uh, with Mud Honey in uh, England. 
That was uh, like 4,000 people. That was the wow. biggest show that we How did, did you go over with the audience? Oh, well, it was good. Everybody loved, and people loved us. People, uh, we had played in Sheffield uh, uh, before. This is where the uh, uh, show was. We had played about a month before. And uh, so a whole bunch of people from Sheffield came to see us. And it was really... Fun. And we picked up some fans from Germany and we brought them with us to England. And then we... Uh, had a lot of press interviews and we pretended that one of the German guys was our um, psychiatrist because mm -hmm. he had this Freudian accent, you know, and uh, so we would have to, we would, I guess we were sort of obnoxious. No, we were very obnoxious. Uh -oh. <laughs> so we, we would we would pretend that we were fighting among ourselves and we'd have the psychiatrist come and settle things down, you know, in front of the, in front of the reporters. Well, we offered his services to the mud honey guys. That's you guys right, are, that's you right. Know, hey, they're sick. Touch me. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Right. Need, need a little help. Probably didn't uh, work. We played in, we played in uh, Berlin eight days before the wall came down. Wow. So that was incredibly exciting. It, like, you know, everybody's like, something's going on, something's going on. And when we were in Hamburg, all of a sudden it came down. And then uh, the next, I guess we were there for still another month. Hmm. And we'd play shows in Lubeck and like Eastern German guys would come in. Like, we're, oh, we love you. We don't care who you are. We love right. you. Because they're free, right? Yes, exactly. And then they would shake us down for free merchandise. Yes. They'd go, well, we're, we're so poor. We never had anything. Can we have a free t-shirt? Could I have two free t-shirts? <laughs> Could I have a free record? Could I have five free records? <laughs> you got a lot of friends that need records. I mean, clearly, when the wall comes down, you need a goddamn record. We saw old women weeping because they'd never seen a banana for the past 30 years. It was really amazing. Then we saw all these people who wanted to get pornography. And, at uh, last. Yes, at exactly. last. Yeah, off to Denmark. Rest in freedom. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So but then we were, went back to the same place a year later, and the honeymoon was definitely over. The West Germans were like, oh, God, the East German people are like from New Jersey, you know, and it was like, they're not smart, they're not cultural, they're just bums, <laughs> and they're Nazis. Yes. We, we had a also, lot of problems. At that Nazis. second year, we had a big run-in with uh, uh, Biohazard. Oh, yes, we got into a big fight with the, Biohazard. The band Biohazard? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine the two of you ever We're playing together. Who books? Yeah. Morphine, and Mucky Bi Pop, and yeah, Biohazard? Pop. I don't know. Pop. Yeah, there Mucky was a band Pop. that came out of that, that cartoon, right? The, uh, uh, yes, I think so. Yes. What was that thing? Uh, they were actually the big band on this bill. And they had their manager with the Bloom County. There was like the Bloom yes, County. Yes, band. Yes, Sorry, yes. We're playing at a giant German disco called Madhouse Ecstasy. <laughs> and we played there before, and we were very friendly with the um, manager. He really liked us. We were like his kind of people. And so we set up our little t-shirt booth. We had made our own hand-printed t-shirts, and I was selling them for $8 because it was, you know, a good price. And then Mucky Pup and Biohazard came in, and they were selling their t-shirts for $20. And their manager, who was very large, came over to Six me foot eight. tried to intimidate me and say, you know, you can't sell your shirts for less than we do. And I go, well, yes, I can. He goes, well, just let's just say that this was like Madison Square Garden. I go, it's not Madison Square Garden. You're not playing at Madison Square Garden, okay? It's a disco in Germany. So he didn't get anywhere with me. And then he went and he really did something to scare the manager. So he comes over to me. And the first thing he do is he drops down um, two shot glasses and then takes this bottle of homemade hooch. And he pours us shots and he goes drink that and he goes then drink another one I go all right fine he goes 
these guys are going to kill me if you don't sell your t-shirt for $20. <laughs> and he goes, look, I, I don't want to make you do anything. I understand how it's DIY and you want it to be affordable for the people. And if you don't want to sell them for $20, that's okay. He goes, but the guy's going to kill me if you don't do it. And I go, well, I'm sorry, but we're not selling our shirts for $20. And for anyway, when the show ended, nobody bought our shirt. Anyway, <laughs> and that's what we told to the manager. Right. Nobody cares nobody about us. They buy our shirt guys. anyway. <laughs> and then what happened when Monkey Pope was trying to, um, with the guy who was going to kill our roadie? Oh, away. Because the manager said, hey, Sean, why don't you come in here and we'll talk about it. And we all said, Sean, don't go in don't there with him. Are you crazy? Yeah. And then for some reason, I don't know how it happened. I guess the manager called some other people as reinforcements. So this um, band from Japan came over to take our side in case there was going to be any like real fighting. Do you remember what band that was? And SMD. I sort of remember that. It was like a Japanese speed metal band. Okay. And the Napalm Death roadies were uh, actually like uh, driving them around. Okay. So they came in to, um, to help us out so we'd have like our sides would be even. And um, then, but the Mucky Pup and Biohazard people, they were so Stupid. I mean, they were just <laughs> no, dumb. shit. Are you serious? I can't and believe it. And I went up to them to try to reason with them, say like, "Why is your manager like threatening to kill us?" And they go, "I don't. They go, we don't know. We just do whatever he tells us." And then they were like very fascinated that we could get around, um, that we could drive our own car, and we knew how to. They go, well, "How do you know how to go from one show to the other?" I go, "Well, we have a map." <laughs> and they're like, "A map? Oh, wow! What a great idea!" And then. Typical German fashion, they serve this as wonderful food, and there was a loaf of bread. They, they don't slice the bread, you know. And the, um, one of the guys from the other band goes up with a knife to get a piece of bread, and he's like hacking at the bread, like hitting the bread with a knife. And he goes, I don't know how to get the bread. <laughs> so I had to teach the guy, who's like 25-year-olds, how to cut a loaf of bread. Wow. Go, you have to use a sewing motion like this, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. See, it makes a slice of bread. They're like, oh my god, you're so smart. Yeah, you think he should be used to that by now. <laughs> Oh, but then the guy threatened to, the manager was really dedicated to his feud, and he started a feud with us that just went around to quite a few different other cities, and even in Philadelphia, he, um, he didn't like go Threatened to kill us. Threatened us, yeah. Our mom and pop operation. Our mom them. and pop operation. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> then the other big fight we got into in Europe was that, um, who's the guy that was going to um, rape me? The guy from Napalm Beach. Oh, yeah, Napalm Beach. Just some... Portland band. He was a junkie. Uh, so he was going to rape you. Yeah, we were at this, this? Um, big. Yeah, we're at a, a a very large venue, and the stage was upstairs, and the band room was in the basement. But you had to go down a really, really, really long corridor to get to the uh, band room. So I was in there with about um, fifteen men and me, and uh, the rest of my band was upstairs here in one of the other bands, and this. Um, guy was wasted, junkie, and he was an alcoholic, he was totally wasted. He started going like, women don't, shouldn't be in bands, they don't deserve to play, they don't know how to play, they're wimps, you should go back, you know. And all the other men in the room were afraid of him. They didn't do anything, or they, they looked at me like, I'm really sorry, but nobody spoke up. Was this guy at all intimidating? He was huge. Okay. And he was really violent, and he started like throwing things. He was breaking the coffee machine and throwing it on the ground. They took the table and he upended, and the chairs are flying everywhere. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I think this guy's kind of. He said he was going to rape me, and I was like, I think this is getting a little serious. <laughs> so I was like, I need to have an exit strategy. 
So I, um, I came, you know, I said a few things and then I um, walked, started kind of get closer to the door. And then when I got to the door, I turned all the lights out and I ran down the hall to get the rest of my band. And then they went and told the uh, managers from the club who then got that guy and they kicked him out. And then that guy in Europe, when you do these tours, you come across the same bands over and over again because, you know, you're there at the same time. You, you're either at the venue at the same time in the next town or they just were there the day before, they're coming back the day after. And then some of the men in the other bands, do you remember who they were? I can't remember them. They're walking from Seeds. Yeah, Walking Seeds. A few of them came up to me when they were away from the scary man and said, I don't believe what he was saying, you know, women can be in bands and stuff. I was like, well, thanks a lot for having a backbone and saying something <laughs> when the guy's telling me he's going to rape me. Yeah. And then um, that guy, um, the, the, the junkie, he started leaving mess. Oh, then we played another show in Hamburg at the Mitternacht with this uh, manager that we had already played with and been friends with. And he was outraged by the story. So he um, came up with this plan to get back at the guy. And when the guy came to do his show there, Napalm Death or Beach? Beach. Beach. He goes to the manager, which was a normal thing, you know, can you hook me up with some heroin? So the guy goes, yes. And then the big payback was he gave him like crappy heroin <laughs> and charged him like double the money. Yeah. And then the guy sort of woke up and realized what he did. So he started leaving messages for me. When we go to the next um, venue, he go, the manager would come up and go, I have a message for you. And the message is, um, tell the little green haired girl, I'm sorry. <laughs> And I was like, all right, fine. And then when MySpace started up, like around 10 years after that, I got a message from that guy. And he was in a 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And the apologizing the, part of it. It was up to yeah. the apologizing part. And oh, he said, I'm clean. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry. I, I don't remember what happened, but I do want to apologize to you. And could we be friends? And I was like, well, I'll accept your apology, and I don't hold any <laughs> grudges, but we are not going to be friends. Yeah, yeah. Too bad he didn't overdose for good skin. <laughs> I think he did a few times. Yeah, but like the, the final kind. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yes, no, you don't have to worry. You don't have to have any conscious. I'm not going to hold a grudge, but we're not going to be friends. Yeah. No big tea parties for that guy. No. What a no. dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you mentioned downstairs that John Peel was uh, an admirer of the band. Uh, he um, he played uh, he played our album over and over and that's why we that's why we went to Europe to do the Peel session and uh, ugh man that was grueling we did uh, we went to Crass's uh, Southern Studios mm -hmm. and did some recordings until two in the morning. What was it like there? In the it was it's like just a regular studio. It's like regular studio. recording studios. Uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. guy who was the the owner of it, he's a famous producer, but I, I don't remember his name. But he was like one of those like est kind of people. He was like very mellow okay. and like you know balanced and. Calm. But the uh, the BBC thing was funny. We, we like didn't get home from Southern Studios until like four in the morning, and then we had to be at the BBC at noon. So we're like no, dragged. it was like eight o'clock in yeah. the morning. We had to be but we, there. But, but we got to walk through the BBC offices as a band. That must be so cool, though. Yeah, right? It was really great <laughs> yeah. because um, this producer runs over to us because. I'm a huge admirer of you guys, and I can't. I'm just so excited that they picked me to do your album. Mm -hmm. It's really wonderful. Um, come right into the room, and then he 
goes a band name and go, well, that's not us. We're yeah. different. Then he goes, oh, right. I don't know who you are. Get out of here. <laughs> and then we got to record our album in the same um, studio. It was enormous. Could fit a whole orchestra in there. It was the same room that Bing Crosby had recorded his final album. And it was very grueling, though, because you basically play six songs, and they mix it right there. And our producer was the drummer from Matahoople. And what you do is, you know, they're very talented and everything, so everything's very good But by the time you're even at the raw stage. But what happens is you get to, like, pick one or two things to change. So we didn't realize that at first. So the first song we did, the drummer just mentions, you know, there's a cowbell in this song. So they spend an hour, like, tweaking a cowbell. And then they're like, all right, we're out of time. No more mixing. Like, so you had oh. a really clear cowbell Ooh. sound. Yes, exactly. Like, Not much really else. Uh, but they were so nice to us because we did this cover that they loved because it was a mashup of the um, the music of um, Yellow Submarine, but the words to Ace of Spades. Mm -hmm. Other way around. So, oh, the other way around. Okay. So, so Motorhead music and Yellow Submarine. It was the music to Ace of Spades and the words to the Yellow Submarine. Our bass player is genius. Uh, it was really was wonderful. Like, wow. And the... Um, the Matahubal guy liked it so much that he went into the, um, he said, I'm not allowed to do this, but I'm going to do it. He went into the BBC archive and he got sounds of um, like water sounds and throwing him in overboard. And, <laughs> you know, it was really fun. So when you do a appeal session, do you re do you retain the rights to that music? Like, how does that work? Because you release you the... Return, yeah, you, you retain, retain everything. Yes, yes. Yeah, John Peel's very fair. The only thing you don't get is the... They can't change anything because um, it was one of those time periods where they would just take the tape and the next day record the next band on it. So yeah. they mix it and then it's done. Right. But you can do anything you want with the music. Okay. Um, so I guess we're moving into the the latter then incarnation. Let's of the let's go back to one thing because there's a, another fun show with that the, that band. So um, what what unit? What uh, this incarnation? is the, the third uh, okay. unit, and uh, we played at the Crypt, uh, which was at um, you know where the restaurant school is. is oh, in, in Center City? No, 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 in West, West Philly. Philly. Oh, West Philly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so, someone has mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. at the Crypt, and we played it's the week house. after. I just forgot the dude's name, man. The crazy guy who'd like give himself enemas and stuff like that. Uh, it, ooh, like uh, like Roxy Erickson. I don't know who who was like. I'm trying to think of crazy people. It's a great story, Alan. Yeah. Um, oh, and if we don't have the name, can you, it's like, can you give me some us. some other hint? I he might be able to. He would give himself enemas on stage and then spray. Oh, Gigi Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Performance enemas. Yeah, okay, yeah, So the week before, Gigi Allen played at the crypt. And we were there, and uh, we, as a band, not playing, but just to see Gigi Allen. Yeah. And uh, we were in the basement, like hanging out. And then Gigi comes in. Gigi's beat the fuck up. Some skinheads came and beat him up. Right. Like every day. Show. Yes, exactly. Well, what his yeah. mo was? He would come into the place. He would assess the situation. He would look for the most beautiful girl and the biggest man. <laughs> then he would start a fight with the biggest guy and the boyfriend of the most beautiful girl. So he'd get beat up from the very beginning. Right. And then he would give himself enemas and spray the crowd. Then he would take the microphone and shove it up his ass. <laughs> and that's basically the end of the show because the sound man would go like the show it's ended over. instantly. Oh, yeah. The second he took did the enema and sprayed around the crit basement. Everybody split upstairs. Except me up, like, yeah, hanging know, around, like, like what's I going on? I had opportunities to see him, and I never chose to go for all of the aforementioned <laughs> reasons. Um, so, you know, I ask you, like, when you go to this, are you not concerned that some freak is going to throw his shit on you or something? I mean, is it no... We you know, have well, yeah, yeah, but you got to... 
I mean, no, that's what it's there. The when I think of when I think of the balance is kind of <laughs> well, well, I mean, maybe like, it goes the other way for well, you. But. For one thing, if you know that's going to happen, you position yourself so that you know, like we're all from the side knowing what's going to happen. Right, you so wear a hazmat like, suit. Over here. <laughs> but the thing was that we played uh, not at the crypt, but with the same sound guy the next week, uh -huh. and so he's setting up the mics, and we're going. I am not man. using your microphones, man. Man, I hope you yeah, clean yeah. this, this mic, mic off, man. I really yeah. hope so. Yeah. <laughs> like, spoil the mic going, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, then, and then uh, progressing to um, the one, one of the most things I regret the most in my life is that when we were on that first European tour, uh, some our the guys who were with us said, "Hey, look, man, you want, we're going to go pick up this band at the airport." Do you guys want to come? We'll just go. And then we said, no, 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 we're going to go and do this. That's so, boring. So, so, my God, why didn't we go pick up Nirvana? Uh, and we're like, yeah. oh, we didn't go see Nirvana. Imagine the friendship, the burgeoning uh, friendship. Uh, exactly, and then the tour you've exactly. Gone on. So then that brings us to 1990. At the end of our, the band, the third version of the band broke up at the, at the end of the tour in 90. We broke up on tour the last day in a rainy, cold day in Berlin. And say, like, okay, that's it. Okay, so... We take a year off, and in the meantime, Nirvana goes to number one. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, for me, it's sort of the end of the hardcore scene. The whole punk thing's just sort of like lost its direction, lost its energy. Now, I know that, you know, for a lot of people it didn't, if and it continued on, still yes. Exciting. But for, for me, it just seemed like that was the end of an era. And then after that, and then if you get into the 90s, and things just change. I mean, Clinton becomes president, and there's no good more economy. Good economy. Mm -hmm. There's no war. Everything's kind of there's nothing to really. Greed there's nothing good. To right? Yeah. There's nothing to real protest. So I think some of the energy came away from then. Mm -hmm. and but then we started hanging out with ACT UP. That was a lot of political yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and we started the fourth version of the band. Julie and Tony come in, and uh, and then all of a sudden there's. It, a lot of places, there wasn't a whole lot of places to play for us anymore. Um, there was anarchist stuff and things like that, but we never did uh, get to the popularity that we had before. Mm -hmm. That's not true because we were incredibly popular with Julie. Yeah, that's true. We well, just had true, a different yeah. kind of crowd. A different kind of crowd. We finally yeah. got into an artsy crowd then. And we were the regular house band at the 40th Street Underground for all the holidays. And we would have huge dress-up costume theme nights, like um, the, the um, Good Friday. We had the Judeo-Christian fantasy night, which we advertise it as that. And we say blasphemy and sin for everybody. And we had two um, gay men dress up um, as wrestlers. And it was a wrestling match between Jesus and David Koresh, because we wanted to find out who was the real Jesus. Uh. And uh, David Koresh won, and we had a huge... <laughs> didn't last long. No, it didn't last long, because the next day he blew up himself and killed a bunch of people. Oops. Oops! Uh, but we had a huge life-size crucifix, which Jesus, who where, had a crown... Where does this bones, come from? Did you make oh, this Oh, we thing? made it. Our drummer made it. Okay. Uh, um, they, uh, the 40th Street Underground was in the basement, so um, Jesus, who had a crown of thorns of condoms and was wearing a bikini underpants and we had made ridiculous paper wrestling belts for them with their initials. He um, and a few people carried this crucifix down the steps 
And everybody was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Then we had a friend who was dressing, she was an operatic singer, and she dressed up as a singing nun. And each of the morphines dressed up as some type of uh, character from the Bible. So we had the wrestling match between Jesus and David Koresh, and we played um, some songs from Jesus Christ Superstar, and I can't remember some other, like, appropriately um, <laughs> titles, yeah. appropriate covers. And then we did a lot of shows like that where they were theme nights at the Foy Street Underground where we just did the craziest mm. crap. It just was like so insane. One show was a Valentine's lingerie sex party. And um, this lesbian couple had uh, made me the most beautiful um, whip. I guess she was experimenting with um, a line of products to sell. So, and she had made me one that was pink with paisley paisley um, lashes with nice studs on it. It was so beautiful. And so I um, gave the whip to her girlfriend and I, I bent over on the staircase and she's like whipping me with the whip. It was really funny. And meanwhile, the, the people that worked there, the doorman, he's sitting at the top of the steps covering his face and his eyes. He couldn't he take it. so blasphemous. He could not <laughs> look at hilarious. it. photo is hilarious. And we have pictures of him. He, he's just like cringing at the absolute horror of what's going on before him. And then we did a... a Christmas show where we had Satan Santa, a guy with big black dreads and a big black beard, and we had like sexy elves, and um, we did Christmas songs, and that's when our uh, guitar player's wife jumped up in the middle of one of the shows and stalked out, and she never talked to us again. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so it seems like in a place like this, you probably found you know, your people. I mean, this yeah, seems we had like a lot this, of is, people this is this is like yeah. definitely yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, because you know, we we were part of the hardcore scene in West Philly because that's what we were. Right. You know. But we had nice attitudes. We were friendly people. So even though people might have um, the per peripheral people who are maybe people would come to shows, they thought we were weird and. They might not have liked us, but the people who were in bands and were like doing stuff, you know, we were like friends and popular with everybody. Yeah. And um, the, I, what I think is very unusual now is, I guess because of our longevity, uh, Alan and myself, people come up to us all the time and say, you know, you were talking about sustainable living when we didn't even know what that word was and like riding your bikes and cooking stuff and, and making things and DIY and he goes, you were really onto something like way before anything and we didn't even know you were onto it until uh, we look back and go like, oh my gosh, they were onto a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, ostensibly, you know, with, with, the, with these crazy performances and the way that you present yourself, you would seem to be really, really weird, but, you know, in talking to you, you're both very, you know, on point and cogent and really friendly, you know. Um, we have you fooled too. I just think that people would, might be taken aback. They're like, "Oh, these are you know these are genuinely down to earth people that we can communicate to. They're not you know beamed in from outer space as it, as it may appear." You know. Yes, it, we're the most normal people there are. <laughs> and that's what you tell each other. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We convince each other that I guess. Uh, so I guess then this fourth and penultimate incarnation eventually come comes apart. Um. Julie wanted to leave. Um, Concentrate she, on political yes, aspects. Yes, exactly. Part um, the drummer, uh, the drummer's, uh, basically, he's kind of a rockabilly guy, so he wanted to concentrate on that. And his pompadour. Yeah. Yes, right. exactly. Leather pants. Okay. And so then, eventually then, there is a fifth. I switched the bass. Okay. Um, 
and we got uh, Bob as a guitar player, and we got Dave, who was in, uh, damn, I just forgot the name of the band. Anyway, Kitch Cow. Kitch Cow, yeah. Um, and we uh, basically didn't, uh, just started right up, didn't, didn't stop, just, you know, kept going, and uh, lots of shows. Bob had a lot of connections in, like, uh, Lancaster. Dave grew up in Lancaster, so we did a lot of shows in Lancaster, Bethlehem, Allentown. Um, we did shows at the Astrocade, which was at, it's at uh, Ridge Avenue at about 10th. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a bunch of Drexel people who would, uh, were into uh, video uh, games, and they had a whole like, video museum going there. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, outdoor shows a couple well, times. Street. Yeah. We did a Pot for Peace rally at Independence Mall. You say Pot for Peace? That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. uh, so how does then... It ended in arrests. Uh, yeah, <laughs> at 420. Yeah. Um, this is before 420-ish. Okay. <laughs> it was at 3.30. Uh, so how then does the morphines end? And is the morphines done? Well, what happened was I started doing um, a television program that was called Big Tea Party that's uh, named after one of morphine's songs called Big Tea Party. And uh, Morphine's did the soundtrack and sound effects for the television program. And can you describe a little bit what the program was Our like? first program, we started out as three-minute interstitial programs, which means that we would be on public television uh, in between programs because they didn't have commercials. So our, our slot was three minutes, and this was 1998. And it was quite um, a boon for us because we had already made 30 high-quality three-minute videos before YouTube was even invented. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the tag was Cooking Crafts and Anarchy, and it was a sustainable living. Once again, that phrase had not been introduced yet. It was a sustainable living DIY, anarchist home economics type um, videos where we would show how to make a vegetarian cheesesteak, and the band did the music, and they did sound effects to the videos, and um, then what kind of happened was our guitar player um, started having babies and moving to the suburbs and, you know, things were kind of falling apart and I was really busy with the television program. So it kind of just petered out for we, the live um, performances. Some of our cultural stuff uh, switched too. We started going to a Burning Man mm -hmm. and uh, kind of getting involved in Burning Man kind of stuff, which is, you can put up with electronic music you know, you don't have to super love it, but you can put up with it. And uh, so, you know, we were kind of involved in that kind of scene. Yeah, we started going to Burning Man when it was tiny, when you could still bring guns and like people fires. who got killed there. Were you bringing guns to Burning Man? No, because we flew in. Okay, <laughs> what a piss it. But you also, could also take anything you want on the airplane. Also, yeah, I mean, axes. We had a big role in... Um, in the 2000 convention that was here, the Republican convention, because that was, you know, all of a sudden that ushered in, a, in an entire like, new, the like, 90s are gone, and now it's the Bush uh, age, mm -hmm. and things just get a lot more serious. So know? Big Tea Party, we made an hour-long commentary on the protests at the Republican National Convention, which Morphine's did the music for, and then we won the um, Best Documentary Award at the Philadelphia Film Festival of Independence. So that was a big boon, because then Channel 12 licensed, um, Public Television licensed that program. And then we start, I started getting a lot of national press, 
and um, I was the other blonde host and they when Martha Stewart you know would do something strange they would put my picture next to hers on like uh, a couple of newspapers and it would always get picked up on the wire because I'd be called the punk rock Martha Stewart so it would always be picked up on the wire so then the article which may maybe would have been just from the Inquirer or the Chicago Tribune covered us a lot it would get picked up by the AP wire and they would be in every newspaper around the country you know in Texas and LA and you know my sister would see it in Virginia in the Roanoke Times and um, and then, uh, because of that article, then I got a call from Al Roker's people, mm -hmm. who came to the house to film an episode of his television program, Roker on the Road. They did that. And then I went on to the um, Today Show. Um, oh, really? And I made my vegetarian cheese steak, which Alan um, very cleverly named the vegetarian cheese fake. Uh -huh. And it became, uh, you know, a pretty big thing. And then they, Should trademark that. And then they put the recipe into the, strangely enough, um, Lonely Planet made the first um, hip travel guide to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So they gave me half a page in that, which no. is absolutely ridiculous. No. But they put the recipe in there right. and hawked the TV show in there. And didn't, wasn't your picture on SEPTA? Oh, yes. Then I was, I was a poster girl. We've been poster girl people um, for uh, several unusual things. <laughs> yeah, the uh, city paper came up with some strange ad campaign where they were going to collect a few people that did things that seemed to be at odds with each other. So I was one of the people where they um, called me an anarchist homemaker. And that reads the city paper. So they took pictures of me um, with a professional photographer, and they photoshopped. I'm doing some holding a frying pan. They photoshopped some giant fire on top of the pan, and then they made them huge posters, and they put them on the back of SEPTA buses. I, I remember being on like the subway. It's like holy shit! It was like fucking face on the house. Like, happened? Yeah, but yeah. I was like, how did that happen? You know, is there money in that, or is no, it just, no money just in that. promotional? Yeah. I think I got a gift certificate to eat dinner, and they gave me to some restaurant. That didn't have any vegetarian food, so I never got to. <laughs> do they give you a giant picture of your own head? They gave me a giant poster, though. Oh, I do okay. have one. So you have a giant head of yourself. Have, yes, I do yeah. have. I do have that as a souvenir. Oh, that's good. At least. And it was really fun. And uh, several times we would be on the subway, and there my picture would be on the, you know, one of the ads, and I would oh, sit next to it and see. No one ever noticed. Oh, that's strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I know somebody tried to steal one, and they were arrested. And that became also a news item. So does the Tea Party still exist at this point? Well, we're still working on um, big Tea Party projects, but however, um, sadly, our name has the words Tea Party in it. So mm. um, it's been quite a very difficult time the past few years. And um, I've been branching out. I bought a new domain called Slaw, S-L-A-W dot me. So we're going to have a new product coming out later this year, a new um, DVD set. You didn't know that Lynn and LaRouche's people are calling themselves slaws now? Oh, they better <laughs> not. No, they're not. No, no, no. I did extensive research in the slaws. Urban Dictionary to make sure that slaw did not have any other Oh, meaning. you don't know that's sexual? All right. Well, we'll do that. Let's tell you about that off later. So what, what project have you been working on in the last uh, few years, Alan? Uh, well, so busy. Um, I, well, for one thing, I went back to playing sports in the 90s. Uh, so what that, were your games? Uh, I, was, I played soccer for 15 years. I played league soccer until I was 50. And, uh, and now uh, um, Morphine's, probably as Morphine's, will not play again. But my music projects go on all under the name Bruiser. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'll do a lot of writing. 
Yes, I'm doing. Like, I've actually edited all my uh, poetry and I'm about to release all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, some poetry. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and my latest thing is I've become a um, a labor union activist. So I'm doing a lot of work with labor unions, and um, it's very um, challenging and really wild. And uh, the whole labor union thing is like off the hook right now because labor unions are being like attacked all over the um, country and the world. So um, right now I'm um, a part of um, Local 590. I'm on the executive board for that union. And what is I'm, the union of 590? It's a part of AFSME. It's part of District Council 47. And it's a, um, this particular group that I'm the, in the union is um, workers in the, um, white collar workers in the library. And I'm the steward for that area. And also I'm on the executive board and I'm on the labor management committee. And I was really um, interesting. The union sent me to um, Rutgers to go to school for um, labor women leaders. And um, but it's a quite a crazy, nasty, unpredictable, backbiting, um, strange, strange, strange world. And it's really, really challenging to um, maintain um, sanity. Um, working with all the different people that I have to help or convince to do what we want them to do. Mm -hmm. I, I come from a union family, oh, uh, although I have no personal experience with it. My father uh, was a lifelong union uh, guy. Yeah, and so. yeah, it's so, really intense right now. And of course, our union is being attacked. Well, the unions are at odds with Nutter now as well. Yes, yes, Philadelphia. That's right, yeah. And, and that's that's right, thing. yeah. Only that's because they want a contract. Yeah, that's my... District Council, which is the umbrella group for um, a bunch of unions, they deal with the city contracts, so it's, it's really wild. Yeah. So I guess in, in summing it up, uh, I mean, it seems to be really clear, and I think it comes through the entire interview, that the DIY ethos has moved through both of your lives, and then, of course, together, uh, and continues to. I mean, you live, you seem to both be living exactly the lives that you want to live. Um, so can you maybe just talk a little bit about how you feel that the ethos has kind of moved through, you know, the course of your lives? Well, it's basically, it's been our lives, you know. I mean, we, we've never not been like this. And we're very fortunate. We, you know, we grew up with an independence and a mindset that said, you know, we don't have to do what they're telling us to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, punk was... A huge part of that but just a part of it you know and, and everything else is like we have decided that we are going to live our own lives and basically we've been able to do that and finally everyone's catching up to us i think it's good i mean you're in effect a threat by example i mean you set this <laughs> you set this example which was the name of a book uh but um you know you, you set this example and, and people see this and uh, they get a chance to talk to you and they see that, that you can live a lifestyle outside the norm not just until you're 21 or 22, but you could actually make the life of it. And I think that, um, I think that's amazing. Um, I mean, it's part of what I want to come through in, in some of the interviews, um, especially with people who have maintained this through their lives, is that it is, it is a viable option if it's something that you want to do and can do. Well, I mean, punk was so attractive because it was the ultimate revolution when it came out. You know, it was like, we don't want any part of your society. 
and we want you to leave us the fuck alone and get away from us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's still kind of that way today. I mean, our whole social circle is still built around all the people that we know from the music scene. And almost all, all of our social connections are from those days. Like in some ways, they are connected to those, those right. days. And you remain really vital people. You know, you, clearly both of you have like a tremendous spark that burns in, inside of you. And uh, I think that that's a really impressive thing. Because I'm sure you, you see other people who are your, your contemporaries in age who've probably lost that spark. You mean those people that are waving to me and go, who's that old, broken-down, toothless guy that's waving to me? <laughs> oh my goodness, it's my peer! <laughs> yeah. You mean that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> and you do get the final laugh in the end, don't you? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, thank you both very much for talking to me. Really All right, well, thank you. So thank you very much. Yeah.